This podcast is brought to you by SMA, where capabilities extend beyond the manufacturing of intelligent inverters to the expert care and maintenance of PV equipment. With services such as grid emulation, commissioning, extended warranty options, and scalable plant-wide O&M, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. Find out more at sma-america.com. So this week we're bringing you a live show that we recorded at an AC Triple E efficiency event in San Francisco. Uh, I just wanted to give you a heads up that some of the audio may sound a bit hollow. We were using some omnidirectional conference mics that picked up some sound from around the room, so it didn't make for the uh, most optimal recording experience. It sounded great if you were sitting in the room with us in front of the PA, but some of the microphones picked up a slight echo. So just keep that in mind. I, I think you'll still enjoy the conversation, however. So here it is. For the week of November 18th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media, and we are live this week in downtown San Francisco at ACEEE's Intelligent Efficiency Conference. Before us sit hundreds of energy efficiency professionals, and as we ask with every live show we do, uh, please make yourselves known to the people back home. folks out there were kind enough to put down their forks and knives to give us a round of applause. We are doing a lunchtime session for the first time. Now, I've caught Jigger eating a bowl of Cheerios once during the show, but we've never done a lunchtime session. I've had my uh, suspicions that you eat when we record the show, but now I can keep my eye on you. (laughs) Jigger is, of course, the founder of Sun Edison, one of the largest solar developers in the world, Uh, actually one of the biggest renewable energy developers now because they acquired First Wind yesterday. So big news. Uh, since moving on from Sun Edison, he has become a clean tech investor uh, and a regular co-host on the Energy Gang. Jigger, how are you? Fantastic. That's the whole point of the mute button is so you can eat your Cheerios. <laughs> <laughs> and you use it very often. <laughs> Our other co-host is Catherine Hamilton. She's in D.C. with me. She is uh, the co-founder and a partner of 38 North Solutions, which is a clean tech policy firm um, focused on pro-clean energy policies there in, in D.C., working very hard on the Hill. Not a very easy job these days. Uh, Catherine, how are you? You have actually one of the most energy-efficient diets because you're a vegetarian, correct? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and they had tofu here, which was awesome. How's it going? Great, thanks. It's nice to be in San Francisco after being in Dubai last week. It's just a slightly different vibe. (laughs) (laughs) All right, to our listeners back home, you know how this goes. We usually pick three stories in the news, but this week we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about intelligent efficiency. Uh, What is it, and how is data driving the business decisions that people in this room are making? With us are two very special guests who are going to help us Uh, with that conversation, and I think they're on very opposite ends of the spectrum, and they'll do a nice, they'll bookend the conversation very nicely. Uh, So first is Ben Bixby, the Director of Energy Products at Nest. Uh, Ben joined Nest when it acquired his company, My Energy, which he founded in Boston. And if I'm not mistaken, Ben, you listened to an old podcast of mine when you were actually founding My Energy. So good to share the mic with you. Oh, yeah, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. We're very excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And next to him is Catherine Winkler, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer at EMC Corporation. Uh, they are an IT services firm. They've been around for many decades, and they, of course, have been uh, focused very heavily in recent years on energy efficiency, on making the IT sector more efficient, and on uh, using big data to make the broader economy more efficient. Uh, so Catherine, I know you're based in Boston as well, right? But you just bought a place out here in San Francisco, so this is kind of home territory for you. It's a new home territory for me, but I um I got here by way of Honduras, so I too am experiencing quite a change in venue. <laughs> and Ben, you're actually you're bicoastal as well, right? I yes, principally Palo Alto nowadays. Okay, yeah. All right. So I want to start off with the first question. It's actually more of a request for an anecdote, and this goes to your new condo purchase, Catherine, because we were talking <laughs> yesterday, and you told me a story about. Uh, what happened when you started monitoring the energy use from your meter at your new condo? And you found something very curious, and I think it highlights why we're having this conversation in the first place. Sure. So, um, actually, I was thinking about it yesterday, Ben. You, you talked about the, uh, yes. you talked about the uh, B to G, business to geek, and the difference between that and B to C, business to consumer. And this, this story highlights that difference as well. When we took possession of the condo, we were actually still in Massachusetts. And my husband is the G in this story. And he immediately went online to, because we don't have smart, a smart meter in Massachusetts. And he thought that was cool. And you need to know, he's the kind of guy that when we first put up solar panels somewhere where they didn't have smart meters, he just stood outside and watched that meter going backwards. He loved that. Um, so he went online to see what was happening. And he said, you know, this is weird. We have this 800-square-foot condo, and it's using more energy per day, empty, than our house in Massachusetts with us in it. What's going on? So um, we sent somebody over to turn off all the, the um, breakers. No change. We said, okay, this doesn't make sense. So I came out here, not just for that purpose, but <laughs> wouldn't do that greenhouse gas emissions. But I was here anyway. So I ran down into the basement, found, looked at the meters, and the meter that had our condo number on it was the same meter number they'd given us. And I could see the instantaneous power usage number there. And then I looked at the one next to it because I wanted to be sure I was reading it correctly. The net one next to it is for our next door neighbor. Their condo is about 60% bigger and they live there full time. And their instantaneous reading was zero. All right. Yeah. Okay. Wrong meter. So you would think that's not a big deal. But what's interesting about this is this condo was renovated seven years earlier. The guy we bought it from had been paying the energy for his neighbor for seven years. <laughs> and what's really funny about it is when we sent him email to say, you know, could you check your meter number to be sure we got the right one? He's like, go talk to P, you know, PG&E if you have a question. Leave me alone. So we're like, all right, fine. Um, but the point being that he's the C in this story, and he wasn't being served by... Um, requiring us to go look it up on the network. He needed to, someone to come along and hit him over the head and say, what you're paying is outrageous for the size condo you have. And so the punch that the punchline, but the conclusion of the story is our bill went from $150 to $25. And, and I thought that was a really nice segue <laughs> into what Ben was talking about yesterday. You know, we have plenty of smart devices. Just because a device is connected doesn't make it intelligent. And I know that ACEEE has done a, tried to talk about the difference between smarts and intelligence. And you know, I wonder how that sort of bakes into your philosophy and how you design products, Ben, because there is a very big difference between smarts 
and intelligence. Oh, absolutely. And it sounds like Catherine's building, there are at least two people in the market for new thermostats. So we'll have, <laughs> I, I, I hope you've seen the advertisements on the San Francisco streets and you'll, you'll choose intelligently. Um, yeah, we, we do design, you know, uh, we, we are a lot of the G's that you've been talking about. You know, you don't get a whole bunch of hardware, software, services, designers together without, you know, putting a few geeks in, in, in a room. But we are always try to be very conscious of, of who we're designing products for. You know, we're, we're designing products for, for consumers. We're designing products that are supposed to work out, out of the box, supposed to work without you having to think about it, and supposed to work without you having to call PG&E to, to get them to work. Jigger. Uh, as an investor who's become increasingly interested in energy efficiency, what excites you most about the intelligent efficiency space? The interesting thing for me is that it's so damn confusing. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things where, I mean, just being here at the conference, I've been approached by folks who are trying to control electric water heaters, folks who are doing thermostats, someone else is doing HVAC, someone else is doing industrial controls, and they all sort of believe that they're part of energy efficiency, right? And some of them have built-in measurement verification, some of them don't, some of them actually have predictive capabilities as to what they're going to save the customer beforehand, and some of them are like, well, it's a crapshoot, I'm not quite sure what the savings are going to be or what the the earnings are going to be on the PJM when I take the electric water heaters and bid that into the frequency regulation market. And so I just think that for whatever reason, I think that there's just some, there's this desire for everyone to be part of one team and not really describe their technologies um, individually. And so, so I mean, I'm, I'm getting better at this whole intelligent efficiency thing, <laughs> but I honestly came into it being extraordinarily confused and I'm getting better, but I'm not quite there yet. Yeah, well, that's interesting that you bring that up because I think a number of people have spoken about the need for systems thinking at this uh, conference. And uh, Catherine, do you want to sort of chime in there in terms of thinking about um, building systems around data acquisition, data collection, uh, data crunching, and using that to the benefit of energy efficiency? Uh, yeah. So um, I think the beauty of big data if we, and why it's different. We've heard data and we've heard big data this week. But I think the point is that you're taking data from multiple sources for a larger system and looking at how the system behaves rather than how the components behave. I think the problem when you look at the individual components is it's really easy to sub-optimize. You optimize them and then the overall system doesn't work. And to your point, it's confusing. You're leaving it to a, as a problem for the consumer to figure out how all of these fit together and where should I be investing. Well, it's also, I mean, the other thing that it's confusing for me is it's not intentional. So, you know, I think that ACEEE comes out with numbers saying that we'd like to make the economy more efficient. We think it can be more efficient by 2.5% a year, which is great. But that 2.5% a year does what to the actual grid, right? So in Con Ed's territory, I'm on the board of NYSERDA, and so we have some responsibilities there. And Con Ed's trying to figure out whether they can actually use energy efficiency to uh, avoid a $1.2 billion upgrade to the Bronzeville um, substation, right? And the question is... Everyone shrugs their shoulder. So right now they're spending upwards of maybe $300 million on storage to do that, that task because I don't think they trust that they can actually intentionally spend that money to do intelligent energy efficiency to be able to avoid that upgrade, right? And so maybe that's not the purpose of efficiency. Maybe it is the purpose of efficiency. But it starts to get confusing for public policy officials who are saying, yeah, I want to make the world a more efficient place, 
But I also have to deal with transmission and distribution lines and feeders and whether they're clogged or not clogged and whether we have to upgrade this or not upgrade this. And I just I think the intentionality there is not quite clear. Catherine Hamilton, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was going to ask, especially, I just came from Nehruk, and I know some of us are kind of going back and forth with the regulatory conference, which is right up the street, and um, and listening to regulators talk and utilities talk about data, it's really different than the cons- maybe the consumer side. And what we're not hearing from policymakers is that, well, the consumers want us to do this. So what do the consumers really want? Then, like, do they really want efficiency? I know your, your husband, the G, wanted efficiency. Well, I, I, I mean, from the Nest perspective, con- consumers aren't uh, looking in the efficiency aisle. You know, they're not, they're not looking for a, a sm- to buy a smart home. They're, they're looking for a thermostat or looking for a smoke alarm. They're looking for a product that's going to do something for them, you know, to deliver the, both the purpose that it, it said it would and that's going to deliver some more about it. Uh, you know, efficiency is a really interesting angle when you're starting to weigh the, uh, a purchase, especially if you're going to replace something that's otherwise perfectly good. Why are you getting this one? Well, because it, you know, it's better, because it, it's going to pay for itself, because it's going to put money back in our pockets. It's an additional thing that it does, but no product does efficiency. Ideally, the product does and delivers something that's going to delight you in your life, make it easier, and it's going to, you know, in addition, deliver, deliver some efficiency for you. I want to push back a little bit on, on your point there, Jigger, because I think a lot of the companies that are in this space in intelligent efficiency are, yes, they're talking about destroying demand, but they're also talking about customer engagement. They're also talking about getting utilities to interact with their customers in completely new ways. You look at a company like Opower, which started off sending out uh, notifications to people, and now they're doing behavioral demand response. Uh, they're doing they're integrating back-end systems to help segment consumers and get utilities, you know, pull together uh, calling data and get utilities far more touch points with the consumer. And so I think that there's this positive end that you're missing in that criticism. Well, I'm not, I mean, I'm not suggesting that these guys aren't doing great work. I mean, you know, I think the intelligent efficiency group in general and the industry as a whole is doing fantastic work, right? I mean, you're at a point right now where the U.S. is using something on the order of around... Um, you know, 5% less electricity on a macro basis than we did in 2007, that's an enormous uh, feat, right? I mean, to get our economy to continue its GDP growth but actually have an absolute reduction in terawatt hours that's used is amazing. My point is simply that when you think about what the independent system operators are trying to do, what they're saying is that we have to have enough energy available to us such that when a polar vortex occurs that we have enough electricity to keep the lights on, right? And so, so the question becomes what role does, um, does the intelligent efficiency group play? I mean, behavioral demands response is cool, and there's been four pilots that Opower has done, and they've found that the data is pretty interesting. Are you going to put that... Yeah, but are you going to put that into the integrated resource plan? Are you actually going to count on that as the ISO? Or are you going to say, well, we're going to put a bunch of peaker plants in just in case that BDR stuff doesn't work. But if it does work, that's fantastic. Well, well you know, Jigger, I mean, in lieu of peaker plants, Nest has found that uh, thermostats actually are, are, are serving just as well. You know, starting to discover the power plants that are sitting you know, in the collective. Uh, you know, a, a number of thermostats uh, that people purchase at at Home Depot, you know, uh, from Amazon, uh, from the Apple Store, uh, they start to add up over time, and uh, you start to find yourself in a uh, situation where you're able to deliver the resource 
as reliably, you know, because you're, you are flipping a switch starting to turn on additional capacity. Uh, and of course, you know, we see at Nest, we've noticed in, in our own studies, we've, we've published as much that uh, certainly behavioral demand response is a thing. You know, folks see on their, their Nest app, they see on their thermostat that an event has been called, and uh, a certain percentage of them are responsive to that, and they, they do things additionally. But again, the, the key word is additionally. There is a reliable resource that can now be tapped across uh, you know, the many nodes of the grid, uh, not, not just in the single points. Well, I think reliable has different meanings for both me and you, but, but, but Catherine, I'd love for you to weigh yeah, in Yeah, I mean, SoCal Ed just awarded efficiency, demand response, storage to serve the LA Basin. So I think that you are seeing movement from the utility side. Um, I mean, the system operators just their job is to operate the system that doesn't matter if it's efficient or not as long as they can get you know power where it's needed when it's needed well one of the questions i had for you all was do you see any do you see any policies that are needed to be put into place to really fully deploy this or do you think policymakers should just get out of the way <laughs> <laughs> um a little bit of both, I guess. Um, well, for one thing, I think that the, this issue of making the data available across the board to consumers is really critical, but I don't mean necessarily directly to consumers. There, there's a whole opportunity for innovation around companies like Nest and other companies to leverage that data to provide new value that might do things like hit my previous owner over the head, you know, or any other types of applications. So I think there's a huge opportunity for environmental growth and, or excuse me, economic growth and innovation around using that data to bridge between the utility and the consumer. And I think we need a little policy help to make that available and in a consistent way. Now let's talk about um, accessing data, right? I think the White House has been, uh, has done as much as they can in, in creating the, the open data initiative and have focused on energy along with healthcare and other sectors. And, um, but, but, you know, the Green Button Initiative, many would say, has been very, very tough, has been a failure in many utility territories. And, and what's gone wrong there? I mean, why, why, and Jigger, I know you, know you were talking about how it, within Pepco's territory, the Green Button Initiative was uh, not very good. You weren't getting clear data. They didn't have the right kind of data. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing if policymakers put this into place, but it's another thing if, it, if it's not out there as well. How, how does the industry and government interact with one another to make sure that open data initiatives are actually a success? Well, I mean, I, I think it starts with the concept of responsibility, right? So, you know, an ownership. And so I think that for many customers of electric utility services, they truly believe that by virtue of paying the bill – that they should have access to that data, right? That is completely not what the electric utility companies believe. I mean, in Dominion's territory, they basically set outright that we own this data. It is not something that the customers own themselves. And if they want it, they'll sort of pry it out of our cold, dead hands, right? <laughs> and so I just think that there's, there's a level of responsibility here which is not being honored, I think, between customers and the utility. And, you know, many of the for-profit companies in the middle are sort of caught in the crossfire because they need the data to be able to do benchmarking work, to do a lot of the other work that they have to do. And, you know, they're in the situation where they're begging folks. The other challenge is the electric utility companies in some cases are hiding behind this because their own IT systems are not capable of providing the data. 
so that even if they wanted to provide the data, they don't actually have a button available, like the green button, to hit that actually says, oh yeah, here's your data, without you know, some analyst having to spend three hours on the request, cleaning up the data, and then actually sending you over a comma-separated values file <laughs> that you can then upload into your thing, right? I mean, it's, there's a tech problem that they don't necessarily want to spend money to solve. Let's talk about data privacy now. So, Ben, many people, you, you got this question a couple of times yesterday. I'm sure everywhere you speak, you get questions about data privacy. For our listeners' benefit, what are you doing with your customers' data? How does that interact with Google and the utilities that you, worked with, you work with? I think there is a lot of speculation out there on the web about how exactly you're using people's information, and I'd love for you to address that. Sure. You know, as more and more uh, devices in the, in the home get, get connected, there's going to be a lot of questions about privacy and, and security, and that's a good thing. You know, that, that's a very good thing. People have the right to know how companies are, are using and are storing their data, and you know, that's why at Nest, uh, we've always been very clear about the, the information we, we collect and, and how we use it. You know, uh, we last thing we want is for there to be any any concern, any any doubt. Uh, so Nest is very clear in our privacy policy and our privacy uh, manifesto. And we're also very clear that your, your personal information is never for sale, you know, uh, not to anybody, not, not at any price. Uh, you know, Nest builds products. You know, we, we sell products. We don't sell advertisements. Uh, it's very important to earn uh, and to stick by and to be very proactive and clear about what you're doing in this, you know, brave new uh, connected world uh, to protect people's privacy and security. We rely on the trust that we've been given to, to earn invitations into people's homes. Uh, and it would be catastrophic to our business to violate that trust and to, uh, to find ourselves losing those invitations. Now, I'm not questioning the policy itself, but my guess is you're trying to be very disciplined in that messaging because that was the first time you had to check notes to describe that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, so, some, sometimes when it's said so eloquently uh, the, 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 the first time by the folks that write your talking points, you just don't want to... Uh, but uh, but in all seriousness, the the, you know, the message is is from the heart uh, and is uh, also you know posted on on the web. And I think it's interesting to to look at Nest's privacy policy as relate as relative to others in the space. You know, very clear. You know, uh, not hidden. You know, very big uh, uh, words uh, and uh, pictures to to illustrate that we you know we view ourselves as simply the custodian of of your data. If you're using our product and you want us to deliver a service to you over that product, I know we are going to find ourselves as a custodian of your data to do so. And we're only going to use that data to improve how we offer the, the product and the service to you. So and if at any moment you don't want us to have that data anymore, you, you can press a button. It's not green, but uh, it, would, uh, it will eliminate... It's probably a good yeah. thing for branding for not to be That's, green. Uh, it was, it was, the trademark was taken. Yeah. <laughs> so just, just to clarify, so you think, so that data, you consider that um, data as belonging to the customer, but in your custody, is that what you're uh, saying? Absolutely. We don't have any data uh, that folks haven't asked us to, to hold, you know, to, uh, to deliver them a, a product and, and service, and we don't, we don't ask for it. Uh, and if ever uh, you do not want us to either continue to deliver that product or service or continue to have that historical information, then, then we won't. It's your data. It's about your life. It's about your home, uh, and it's, it's not ours. Yeah, I was just in a, listening to a panel um, yesterday at NARUC about data privacy, and there were regulators and utilities, and I just got the sense that they, they do understand, that group understood that the data 
belong to the consumer, but I don't know that they even know what to do with it once they have it or what the consumer could potentially do with it if I, they had it. I think that's absolutely right. You know, Nest, we found ourselves as we uh, increasingly, wor- you know, look to work with utilities all around this country, we found ourselves put in a very difficult position both by uh, some individual utilities and uh, some particular uh, manufacturers of, of thermostats, you know, policy a differentiating point of view from some thermostat manufacturers looking to sell into utilities is that they'll sign over all the customer's data. You know, they may not even ask the customer, but certainly you know, all data for all time for all customers can be beamed directly back to a utility that, that may not even know why they're asking in the first place. They, uh, you know, if you ask them, why are you asking for this data, the, the answer that you most frequently get back is, well, because big data. You know, because there might be something there. Uh, you know, Nest is a, of a view that you know we need to uh, be sure to protect customers against uh, these overreaching intrusions into their their privacy. Uh, that we want to help to solve some of the opportunities that uh, that this you know brave new world of data may create. But we need to be able to to do it in a deliberate fashion, to do it in a way that's going to protect customers' privacy and security. Uh, and is going to you know create a, create opportunity for for everybody. And you know, to be clear, you know Nest doesn't participate in programs where uh, you know where utility where anybody is making uh, you know signing over of your your privacy of your personal information uh, a contingency for for participating in that. So I'd like to um, point out something that came up yesterday, which is there really you know are two issues at least around data privacy. There's you know the actual set of policies and technology, but there's also the perception issue. And what do the, consum- what do the consumers think is happening? And we did a, a study last summer of uh, privacy perception. And what we did find is that consumers, this was across um, 15 countries, but in general, across all of them, consumers have not a lot of faith in the technical ability of companies who hold their data to re- to retain the privacy of that data, and they have even less faith in the ethics of the companies to do that. Um, so that's that's one of the challenges. It's not just what is the technology we put in place and what policies do we put in place, but how do we do it in a way that's transparent and creates trust or confidence in the user, and how do the users understand what their responsibility is? Because one of, one of the things that was really interesting about this study is that um, most of the, the, the 15,000 people we surveyed said that the, the problem with, with uh, privacy was ethics, it was skills, but it wasn't personal behavior. <laughs> Oh, no. And, 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 and yet, taking very limited precautions to that, keep yeah, their own data safe. Less, less than a third of the people were actually changing their passwords, while 50% of them had had a breach already. And yet, the very lowest thing on their list as a problem was their own behavior. So we've, we've got some work to do there, too. Oh, and I mean, we should all, as, uh, as industry, as companies, as players, take, our, take responsibility there. A large part of the problem in this you know, day and age is uh, the, the policies that you click through. How many people here have clicked... You know, I authorize, I allow on, you know, what may amount to 50 pages of, of legalese that, I mean, there may be a couple lawyers here, but I doubt that uh, many of you have, have, uh, have read. You know, Nest, as part of our privacy commitment to our customers, uh, we, we work to insulate folks from that. We don't allow people who are going to, you know, work with Nest uh, programs or Nest products to put 50 pages of legalese and to say, hey, you need to click this button to get to the next step. It's important to us that not only are our privacy 
uh, commitments made clear and made manifest, but that who we choose to partner with uh, is, is doing so as well. And, you know, we will decline business. We will, we will uh, avoid uh, economic opportunity for ourselves because we believe in this bigger purpose of clarity and promise uh, in protecting our, our customers' privacy. Yeah, there's no question that industry, whether it's in the utility industry, the IT industry, or anything else, has an obligation to be more transparent about what data you're collecting, why you're using it, how you're using it, but also to make it easier for people to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. You're right. 50 pages of legalese doesn't cut it. That's right. So are you saying that your terms and conditions are shorter than Apple's iTunes terms and conditions? I I believe that they are, yes. All right, that's good to know. Uh, (laughs) So Catherine Winkler, um, what is that – how do you deal with that data privacy issue on the corporate level, right? You know, I talked to a lot of vendors out in the intelligent efficiency space. Many of them talk about their cloud-based SaaS software and, you know, how they're, and, and very few customers, very few utility customers want their information out in the cloud. Um, I know you have some limited cloud offerings. They're not a, a huge part of the business. Is that correct? But anyway, how do you think about data privacy in terms of how you're storing large corporate customer data? Um, we think about it in a variety of ways. So first of all, the cloud, the definition cloud, some people think of as just meaning the Internet, somebody else's governance, somebody else owns your data and could do what they want. But actually, cloud is an um, architecture. And part of the cloud can live in your own four walls where you completely retain governance and control and policy over that data. And many of our customers do just that. But the, the promise of cloud technology allows you to sort of combine that with public data and be able to get the best of both worlds. The second point I think that's really important is big data itself is a technology being used to develop privacy and security for big data. So the old days of um, security by simply saying this piece of data, when it's on this system in this data center, can only be accessed by those people for any purpose. is crazy. I mean, we ha- we're moving to a much more dynamic pattern matching model that says, is it appropriate for this person to be accessing that data wherever it is, you know, at this time of day for that purpose? And that's going to allow um, protection to say, geez, it's just like um, you're using your banking these days. You know, if you try to get to your online bank from Dubai, you know, they'll start asking you a lot more questions because they know that pattern is off. And when I went to India last year, they cut off my credit card like this. That's the same model that we really need to be using to protect data. And so we see these big data technologies as actually the source of better privacy as well as a a driver for for requiring it. Speaking of using data to your advantage, this is a good time to take a break and mention our sponsor, SMA. To ensure maximum ROI, it's important to have a watchful and proactive eye on your investment. With SMA's state-of-the-art solar monitoring center, experts are able to utilize advanced real-time monitoring capabilities to analyze performance, detect potential issues, and resolve matters remotely. Or if needed, they can dispatch field service engineers to get your PV system back on track quickly. Maximize performance and minimize downtime with SMA Service, where your success is the company's top priority. Learn more at sma-america.com. And now back to the conversation. Now I've got a question for you that you asked in your panel yesterday. Is big data uh, qualitatively different, not just quantitatively different? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so big data, um, the, the thing ab- about big data, first of all, it is about 
quantity. It's also about speed, velocity, looking at data in real time. And what that means particularly to the utility industry is being able to see events as they unfold. So, for example, being able to reroute around failures that are recurring as opposed to something that already happened that you get find out about from a phone call. Um, and then there's the variety of data. So if you... Um, in the old days, you would take data and you would normalize it all, and you'd lose the, the, the you'd lose signals. You'd lose low amplitude signals that could be really important when you normalize that data. Now, by storing it in its original form and only applying a schema, a view of it when you're analyzing it at that time, you retain that original data and you retain additional uses for it. So, yes, I think big data is qualitatively different. Um, so we're actually getting close to the end of the session. A uh, couple quick questions. So if President Obama came to you and asked you for support on building an energy efficiency policy focused on intelligent efficiency, what do you think your top recommendations would be? Now, I know we're talking about um, much of this comes on the utility regulatory level, but on a national level, do you have an answer for that? Are there any policies that come to mind? That well, I mean, I think that... Catherine. Oh, no, I was just going to say we've got 111D. I mean, we need to figure out how to get all of this credited as part of the scheme for how we're going to move to a cleaner, you know, lower carbon future. So I feel like that we've got something we can work on right now. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think the reason I care so much about this and the reason I sort of am so sort of black and white about this is because I think that Right now, the assault on solar and wind technologies is that they're variable. And, and what people are saying is we need physical storage um, at the site to make them not so variable, which I think when you talk to people in the modeling world, they think that whole thing is crazy, that actually using demand response and load control and intelligent efficiency solutions is way, way cheaper to getting those technologies up to 20, 30, 35% penetration levels before you really need the physical storage to, or chemical battery storage or thermal energy storage or whatever it is that you're using um, to be able to go beyond that. And the thing that I'm most concerned about is that my, my sense of this whole thing is that because it's so product-based, right, where people are just voluntarily going out and buying Nest thermostats or they're voluntarily going out and buying, you know, this or that or the other thing, that it's not clear to me that the planners are actually able to rely on that as a reliable resource by which to plan for the next decade or two decades. It's sort of like, well, I hope it's there. I think it'll be there. My models show me that it'll be there, but it's not quite dispatchable, and it's not quite sort of reliable from that perspective. And I think it's going to get there really quickly, maybe in 12 months or 18 months. But I find that the conversation and the quality of the conversation is so weak in this area that when I talk to regulators, the regulators are like, well, I'm not getting any firm promises being made by these companies, and so maybe we sort of have to figure out another way of backing up solar and wind. Well, you know, I'll, I'll avoid the federal policy question, but I'll, I'll address you know Jigger's point, which is which is a good one. You know, Nest Nest promises to be there. You know, Nest, uh, and one thing that uh, we think that you you can plan on, you know, as you're planning the the future of of the grid and the future of our country is the digitization you know of of American homes is is just getting started in earnest. You know, not having having spent perhaps a decade in the B to G in the business to geek demographic now. It's, it's early mass. It's becoming mass market. Uh, and that's, that's uh, a trend that you certainly can count on. But you do raise an excellent question of, 
you know, can you as a, a planner count on being able to, to leverage the, the, the collective power, you know, perhaps all, all these, what you might think of as uh, virtual power plants, you know, uh, out there. I think there's, uh, there's certainly a, a good uh, policy question to, to undertake. There's been some premises that, uh, you know, a, an individual household may not be interested in participating in a six-hour long uh, response event, you know, uh, in, in the time when that, uh, when, you know, ISOs or whoever may have created the rules that would require, you know, resources to either be of a certain size or to participate for a certain duration, they, they took uh, certain things for granted, you know, certain base conditions. Well, now, you know, with smart devices in, in homes that can respond individually quickly with, with great precision, you know, it's time to question some of those, uh, some of those uh, rules uh, that, that may be preventing these resources from being unlocked. But one thing I can certainly promise you is that if, you know, if we work together to unlock them, they'll be there. How active is NAST on the regulatory level? I, yeah. I'm very conscious of the hundreds of people in the room and the microphone that's in front of my mouth right now. Uh, the thousands listening back home. You know, I, I mean, NEST, NEST wants to be more involved in, in the, uh, as, a, as a resource, you know, both as a resource to folks that are, are uh, considering the, the regulatory approaches uh, and as a, you know, energy efficiency resource uh, to the grid. And so we're, we're, we're here for you, energy efficiency and intelligent efficiency space and regulators. <laughs> Well, you know, Catherine Hamilton works on this stuff all the time, so you, you guys should, yeah. Ness should look her up. I should, no, yeah, I should get her business card. <laughs> all right, so um, in 2047, Ray Kurzweil says the singularity will happen, and we will have human computing. Computers will be blended with our bodies. What is Ness's strategy for when, this human, when the singularity comes? <laughs> Well, you know, we're and you're already to, doing wearables. We're, we're trying to get on the good side of the robots so that, you know, uh, we'll be uh, benevolent overlords to us. Uh, no, no, I, I, I think um, we, we have, we've not yet, uh, our roadmap doesn't extend that far out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we wrap the show up with Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I gave you homework. You're supposed to tell our listeners something they don't know. Uh, maybe a nugget you've picked up at the conference. Maybe a news story that's happened. Uh, well, you sort of stole my thunder at the beginning of the show, but I just wanted to—I wanted to highlight the big, uh, the big uh, acquisition yesterday of First Wind, which I do some policy work for them, federal policy work for them. It's an absolutely great company. They were acquired by Sun Edison in a deal with Terraform, and now Sun Edison will be the biggest solar developer and a huge wind developer as well. So it's pretty exciting. Ben Bixby. I sure you know, Stephen, I did my homework. I, I crunched some numbers. I, I, I prepared some interesting spreadsheets. But I, uh, you know, for the thing you don't know, I had to go with something that popped in my inbox twice this morning. You know, Nest, Nest saved the lives of two families last night. You know, the Nest Protect product uh, alerted folks who had you know, recently acquired these products who otherwise wouldn't have been alerted by what they had before, what they didn't have before. And the reason why I highlight it you know, here at an intelligent efficiency event is because you know, the digitization of the home, the thing that's bringing you intelligent efficiency in the home, isn't only about energy, isn't only about efficiency. You know, it's uh, safety, it's security, it's comfort that's driving people to do that. And, you know, saving lives is, uh, is a fun thing to get to, to be able to do, and it's uh, a great thing to be pushing your space forward. Catherine Winkler? So we've been talking about data and the growth of data. I thought I'd share some numbers with you to really appreciate it. In 2013, we produced as a society... 4.4 zettabytes of data. 
Um, you, I know you've all heard of terabytes, probably most of you petabytes. We kind of zoomed right by exabytes, which came by after that because it's growing so fast. We're now at zettabytes, which is 21 zeros. It's doubling every two years, and by 2020, we'll be at 44 zettabytes. That's 1.7 megabytes per person on the planet per minute. Jigger Shah? I am fairly sure that's going to crash my Microsoft Excel. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 was, I was racking my brain for stuff, too. And, you know, the one, the one thing that I think um, I just reviewed before this conference was I just think that it's quite shocking to me in our industry that people don't know that the United States of America has hit peak electricity. That we're actually, four out of the last five years, we've actually used less electricity than the year before, and that we are on track to doing that again in 2014 and again in 2015. And I think that that is a testament to this conference and to the people in this industry that are working hard to use, you know, either big data or hardware or whatever it is to permanently reduce electricity usage while we're still, you know, achieving GDP growth as a country. And I just think that... Um, the part that I think people have a hard time realizing is that it's, it's sending shockwaves through our utility planning process, it's sending shockwaves through our generation planning process, through our capital expense process. I just think that people, people have this sort of, oh, it's good to use less electricity. And we are now doing that, and we're now faced with um, you know, 4%, 5% rate increases in electricity for as far as the eye can see, because the old regulatory model is a, you know, I hope we sell more kilowatt hours next year to be able to spread the cost over it model. Um, and, you know, we're not quite there at Utility 2.0, but I think it's a testament to the people at this conference um, that we're actually achieving a reduction in electricity usage every year. Yeah, you guys are winning. <laughs> uh, and mine is, uh, I'm very vendor-centric in my reporting. So last year, uh, Groom Energy which uh, lost their researcher, Paul Baer, to uh, First Fuel, put out a great report on the enterprise smart grid, looking at all the software companies doing intelligent efficiency in buildings. And they found that there were over 300 companies doing some sort of building energy monitoring software in the U.S. And so it just goes to show you, A, how much promise is in this market, and B, how crowded it is getting as well. So I thought that was a really interesting factoid, and maybe many of you in this room know it, but... Uh, that was mine for the, for the week. So Catherine Hamilton, Ben Bixby, Catherine Winkler, Jigger Shaw, thanks very much. Um, that's going to do it for the show this week. If you want to learn more about the show, you can go to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. You can follow the three of us on Twitter or follow the Energy Gang account on Twitter. Uh, we have links to the various stories that we discuss in this podcast. Uh, and you can also subscribe to us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher Radio. There are a variety of ways to get this show automatically uploaded to your computer or mobile device when we post it. So thanks very much, uh, and we will catch you next week. Thank <laughs> you.